Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the last chapter, the last five verses of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, or there it's printed for you in your bulletin as well, Exodus 40. <clears throat> begin reading in verse 34. <clears throat> Let me remind you of where we've come on this great journey. We, we've been, it's, it's been one year since... Um, the children of Israel left Egypt one year to the day when they dedicate the tabernacle. But it's taken us a number of more months than that to study the whole thing. We started February 17, 2019, 21 months in studying this book chapter by chapter mostly. We started in chapter 1, verse 1. We're ending here in chapter 40, verse 38. And I pray... That every time we've opened this book and every passage we've studied, you have seen your Savior. You've learned more about what He came to do for you. Some of you have even professed Christ in the study of the book of Exodus. And that's appropriate because if we were to summarize this whole book, we could say it's all about Jesus. We're not reading Him into the text. This is the way the Bible tells us to read Exodus. It tells us that he is symbolized in the major images of Exodus. He's symbolized in the, in the release from their captivity. He is the Exodus. He, he's symbolized in the manna that came from heaven. He's the bread of life. He's symbolized in, in the light, in the fire, in the rock, in the in the, the, the leadership through the wilderness. He is symbolized in all the, the whole pattern of the book is a symbol of the life of Jesus. They were in captivity for 400 years. They were crying out to the Lord. The Lord answered. He sent Moses to them. Moses led them out of captivity into the promised land and, and not without reminding them that he is always with them in the tabernacle. After 400 years of silence, Christ was sent by the Father into the world. He led us out of our bondage to sin by His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. He did not leave us alone, but has remained with us through the Holy Spirit in the church. It's symbolized in the Exodus. But Jesus is more than symbolized in the book of Exodus. The, the, the New Testament, in Jude verse 5, we've quoted it often, the New Testament teaches us that it was Jesus who led His people out of Egypt, working with Moses. The, the, the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that, uh, that the, 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 the spiritual rock that gave them water, well, that spiritual rock was Christ. So Christ was in this book, was in among these people, leading them out of their bondage, leading them into the promised land to fulfill the promise that He has made to all of us, that though Satan would attack the seed through which the Messiah would come, God would step on and crush the head of the serpent through the work of Christ. I want you to see in these last five verses, I want you to see Christ again. I want you to see Him in a fresh way, and especially as we begin Advent in this series on the glory of Christ, I want you to see the glory of Christ 
revealed here at the end of the book of Exodus. We begin reading in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken out, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. When I was in high school, my best friend and I felt we were called by the Lord into the pastoral ministry, which is where both of us have ended up. We felt that nudging by the Lord spiritually. We felt that confirmed by the people who were working with us, but our pastor, who is his father, uh, said to us, you know, if you're going to be, if you think you're called to the pastorate, you, you need to be doing the things that a pastor does, and one of those is visiting the sick. And so we decided we better do that, and we picked a nursing home nearby, and our, the pastor ordered us some large print upper room devotionals, and we took those, those devotionals to that nursing home. We went with some fear and uh, nervousness and awkwardness, but we were quickly uh, assured. We went into a very, very kind lady's uh, room, and she had just arrived there. She hadn't been there very long. She was a very, very bright Christian. She was, she was effusive in her joy and encouraged us and found out about us and took interest in us and, and encouraged us in what we were doing. She said, now, now, what I would like you to do is to, is to go visit a friend of mine. She's on the other end of the hall, and I think she would enjoy seeing you as well. Why don't you take her a devotional? Well, my buddy had to leave and go back home, so I said, I'll, I'll take the devotional to her. I tapped on the door. The answer was, what do you want? And I said, uh, well, I, I, uh, I'm sent here by Mrs. So-and-so. She said, you might like to see me. No, I really don't want to see you. Well, I came to bring you something. I, I, I have here in my hand a, a booklet that I think you will appreciate. Who's on the front of that booklet? Jesus? I don't like Jesus. Well, my knees are knocking now. I thought this is, uh, this is already the end of my pastoral career. I'm not making any good success. She said, I don't believe in Jesus. Do you? Yes, ma'am, I do. You ever seen him? Here I thought I was clever. I said, yes, ma'am, I have. Now she perked up a little bit. You did? Where did you see him? In my heart, I said. Bah! You didn't see Jesus in your heart. I left the room discouraged. 
I didn't get, I wasn't able to go back for a number of weeks. Part of it's because I just didn't want to go back. I finally did go back and I went to my friend's room, first of all, and she said, I'd like you to go down and see, I forgot her name, we'll just call her Mrs. Ba. You want to go down and see Mrs. Ba? I said, I don't, I don't think I should see her again. I upset her last time. No, I think you should. I went down to see her and I saw her in her bed. She was sitting upright. She was clean. Her hair was brushed. and She had a different look on her countenance. I thought I was in the wrong room. I went back out. I looked at the room number. I came back in, and she said, who are you looking for? I said, I told her. She said, you've seen me. You know me. I said, what's happened to you? Well, your friend, our friend, she said. She's been, she came down and talked to me. She witnessed to me. She overwhelmed me with how big God is. She overwhelmed me with how big my sin is, how big this world of sin is, the way she was sinned against. And then she led me to Jesus. Guess what, she said. George, I've seen him like you have. I've seen him in my heart. Don't you sometimes grow jealous or a little bit envious of the Old Testament saints or the, even the New Testament people in the, in, the, in the Gospels who saw the Lord, who saw a manifestation of the Lord, who saw just the cloud? What a difference it would make if you just could see the cloud of God's presence. Don't you grow jealous? When in truth, you can see more than these Old Testament saints did. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have seen more. But like my friend in the nursing home, you must see him in a way that surprises you in two ways. Now, it's been so long since I submitted the outline for this bulletin, you can disregard the one that's in there, and you replace it just with two points, surprise number one and surprise number two. Surprise number one is to see the Lord, to see the Lord as He is revealed, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be surprised by His distance, His distance from you, His total otherness from you. This word that is translated glory in our text in verse 34 is kavoth in Hebrew. It literally means to be weighty or to be heavy. We'll We'll discuss that language later, and particularly with a, a, a clever article, a clever sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. But for now, just suffice it to say that this word translated glory, kavoth, is used 45 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to, in this form, the visible manifestation of God. When the tabernacle is put together according to the commands, as Moses followed all the commands, as soon as it is put together, God descends on it visibly in the cloud. Now, and, and, and in so doing, He reveals several things about Himself that, that tell us how far away and other He is from us, how utterly other He is. For one, it tells us how powerful is His being. 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, our catechism says. We see it in our, in our text again in verse 34. This, this cloud filled the tabernacle. Verbal form is dynamic. It is active. This is, not just a, this is not just a wispy white cloud you might see while you're lying on your back in a, on a summer day and you envision it to be a poodle or a, a hunter or some other uh, peaceful thing. Only, I mean, a hunter is peaceful to me, but, but the, you, you imagine it to be something that is serene. It's not that. This is instead, as my friend Phil Riken said, this is the, this is the Lord if, filling the tabernacle with radiation. The place is trembling. It's reminiscent of Mount Sinai when the cloud came down on Mount Sinai and shook it. This denotes God's powerful being. Secondly, it it conveys that he is a dreadful judge. The cloud shows up elsewhere in Scripture. It reveals him to be something that is to be dreaded. The Egyptians knew that. They knew that. They knew his glory revealed in, their, in, the, in the plagues, but they also knew the glory of his cloud to be a dreadful force when it moved from in front of the Israelites to behind them and in between them and the Egyptians who had pressed them against the Red Sea. They shrank back in fear because God revealed Himself through that cloud. And that cloud not only was dreadful to Egyptians, it was even dreadful to God's people. When, when, the, when the cloud came down in Mount Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 19, the whole earth trembled, and God said, you stay far away. You tell the people, don't come near lest I break out against them and kill them. The presence of God, the manifold presence of God comes down into this cloud, with this cloud, and on the tabernacle He reveals and elsewhere that He is infinite in His holiness. He is he's conveyed to be infinite in His holiness by means of that visitation on Mount Sinai again when He says, don't even touch the mountain or you will die. I am holy, you are other. You are sinful. New Testament says he, he lives in unapproachable light. No one can see Him. No one can be near to Him. And it's ultimately proved when Moses himself cannot come into this tabernacle. You would think if anyone is going to be worthy of or saved or recognized for his good works, it would be Moses after all he's put up with. But God says... Not even Moses, my mediator, can come into my holy presence. Now, what does this say about Jesus? If it is true that everything in, in, the, in the tabernacle, everything in the book of Exodus is to prepare for the coming of Christ, and Christ is the personification of grace, Christ is the representation of the Father, He is Emmanuel, God with us, does this do these same th- three things? apply to Christ. They do. The Lord King Jesus is not to be trifled with. He is a powerful being too. Mark 1 says, even the demons obey His voice. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of God's glory. 2 Corinthians 3.10 says he is surpassing in his glory. If Christ, Christ Jesus were to descend into this place right now, he would terrify us in the superiority of his being. He is powerful in his being. He is the dreadful judge, the Bible warns. That those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, those who insist on making their own way of commending themselves to God, Revelation 6 says, in that day, those who see the judgment of God through Christ, Christ on the throne of judgment, they will beg for the rocks and hills to fall on them. Because why? Because of the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, He is the Lamb that was slain. Yes, he is the last lamb. We're saved by the blood of the lamb. But that lamb someday will turn his forbearance into judgment and break out dreadfully against those who continue to rebel against him. He is not to be trifled with. And then that Christ is infinitely holy. We know it from Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, that without holiness no one will see the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. And what does that recognition of the greatness and the otherness of God, what must it do to us? It must overwhelm us with how great He is and how inferior we are, specifically how sinful we are. My friend John Yenchko told the story of W.H. Auden and his encounter, his, his encounter with evil like he had never seen it before. W.H. Auden is argu- arguably the, was arguably the greatest British poet, literary critic of the 20th century. He had an incredible intellect. <clears throat> 1940, Auden was sitting in a an American movie theater, and a propaganda film was being shown. Maybe it was 1939. A propaganda film shown from the Nazis. It's called a Psyche of Poland, and it, it was celebrating the blitzkrieg of the, the German, the, the Nazi forces uh, sweeping across Poland, having lied to Neville Chamberlain. And they were bragging about how their, their superiority, and they were, and they, and they were, they were leading the, the Poles out, the Polish people, into captivity and their prison and even to death. And at every point uh, where a Polish person was shown, the theater, which was filled with German immigrants, the German immigrants in this American theater would cheer and yell, kill him, kill the Polish kill him. Alden was undone by the whole experience. He couldn't stand it. He'd never been in the presence, such concentrated presence of hatred. And yet he searched his heart and he searched his, his secular humanistic worldview for an answer to that nugget of sin. He had to walk out. He had to get away from it. It, it pushed him 
It pushed him to realize not only is this world in the grip of evil, but the seed of the same hatred was in his own heart. And in utter desperation and bankruptcy, he was overwhelmed with the greatness of God, not only in its moral superiority, but the greatness of God's power sufficient to save even him. And people given to hatred like those around him. Let me tell you the difference it will make to look at the greatness of God in Christ. You and I will quit pointing our fingers so much at those others who then say they are unforgivable. They are despicable. We will, in other words, take ourselves off of the judgment throne by which we say that person is not worthy. That person is dehumanized. That person deserves whatever they get for what they've done to me or to my people or in, my, in the, the political world that I follow. They are unworthy. It will change the way we view other people when we compare and contrast ourselves to the holiness of God. We will instead beg for mercy. And turn and beg for mercy for those others as well. You can't see Jesus without seeing His greatness. And you can't see Jesus without seeing also His nearness. This cloud is terrifying. But the fact is that this cloud has descended onto the tabernacle. God didn't have to come near, but He chose to come near. God did not have to construct the tabernacle by which He would draw sinners close to Himself, by which He would symbolize their casting their burdens and their sins upon Him, but God did it. I read an interview with Stan Lee. Not long ago, Stan Lee died quite a while ago. He was the, in, the um, inventor. He was the, he was the genius behind so many of the superheroes that are now being uh, resurrected and put into film, the film industry that has become quite lucrative. He's the genius, or at least co-creator, behind Black Panther and Spider-Man and the X-Men and Thor and Iron Man, the Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk daredevil ant-man and he he, he predict he prophesied in 1984 he prophesied a story these marvel comics will never go away these superhuman heroes will never go away they will stay in the cultural consciousness forever and they asked him why what's the secret that you've discovered when you craft these superheroes he said this it's not so hard to imagine a, uh, a, a man who gets angry, gets gr- green and big and, 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 and is powerful. It's not so hard to imagine a man who, like a spider, can walk up the walls. But what endears people to them is that someone with all of these powers remains very human and shares all of their burdens. What endears them is that they also have dandruff and acne. Their girlfriends jilt them. They have real problems. This is the God who has come down to us. 
the God of infinite power, dreadful in His judgment, infinite and other in His holiness, but has come down and has made a way for us to get near to Him. The reason Moses could not come into the tabernacle yet is that no blood had been shed in it. But God had designed this place to be covered in blood. He designed a bloody pathway from the entrance to the tabernacle courtyard, across the brazen altar, through the the, the cleansing basin, into the holy place, into the holy of holies, a mercy seat covering the law of God, drenched in blood, so that when the high priest made that offering, he came back out and symbolized what God would do by the light of the menorah. He would sit down with his people at the table of showbread and have an elegant meal. God came down in the cloud on this this construct, on this structure, on this system created to bridge the distance between a holy God and a sinful people. And Jesus is the personification of that, as the writer of Hebrews says. He is this tabernacle and the altar. These are just replicas of what already exists in heaven. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has become the high priest who comes and meets us at the gate. He takes us through. He offers himself on the altar. He dies there. He sheds his blood for us. He cleanses us with the washing of water. He takes us into the Holy of Holies. He he brings us mercy. He accepts our prayers with the altar of incense. And he, he sits down with us to have a meal. This is all about Jesus. Furthermore, the cloud goes on to teach us not only that it provides a bloody pathway, but it It provides a trustworthy guide. The cloud will move out from the tabernacle. It will lead the people of God and guide them just as Christ does. One of my favorite aspects of the architecture of of uh, of this building is right outside those doors in the skylight that's trimmed with 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. The one who said, let light shine in darkness has shown his light in our hearts that we might see in his face the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus, our good shepherd, is that light to guide us, to guide us in good paths. They're difficult. They go through the valley of the shadow like they are right now, but he is guiding us because he loves us. That cloud would also protect them. You say, oh, if I could just open my blinds in the morning and see the cloud. If I could just open them at night and see the fire. But you can see better than that. If you've taken Christ to be your Savior, you don't see us just a secondary demonstration of the presence of God in Christ. You see His glory. Here's how John says we've seen it. We have beheld His glory. As of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That one whom Moses longed to see in the Old Testament, show me your glory, has revealed his glory in Jesus Christ. And here it is. Here is his essence. Here is what makes him God. This is what makes him tick. This is what drives him. 
It is His mercy in saving you. And here's a fourth thing that you don't see in the text. You see a, you see a shadow of it. But here's what you will see someday with your physical eyes. Here they saw the secondary demonstration of the presence of God in Christ the mediator. But someday, Mark says in his gospel, you and I will see him coming from the east on the clouds. You will see him personally. You'll either see him because you're still alive or you'll see him because you're coming with him. But if Christ is your Savior, you will see him face to face. The power of his presence. To see him means you understand his distance. To see him properly, you also understand his nearness. We've been reading the last few days the story of what was called Operation Thunderbolt. It's the rescue of Jewish hostages who were held in the Entebbe airport by terrorists. Rescue occurred July 4, 1976. There's a, a rash of hijackings in the 60s and 70s, and, and uh, this El Al Air France, uh, I mean, Air France flight f- took off from Tel Aviv, and, and um, soon after it, it took off, it was, and it passed through Athens, it, it took on the terrorists who would take over the plane. They diverted it to Libya, they got some fuel, and then they, then they went south. No one could have dreamed where they were going. They were going to Uganda because the newish dictator, the monster Idi Amin, had made a prearrangement with the terrorists. Soon after they landed at Entebbe Airport, they offloaded the, the non-Jewish hostages and kept just the 90 or so Jewish Israeli hostages and said that they were going to start killing them one by one until Israel met their demands. The Mossad, along with the Israeli Defense Force, designed a terrorist or a hostage rescue the likes of which had not been seen before. They flew through the night. They refueled in in Africa, and they swooped down in the middle of the night. They swooped down into the Entebbe airport. The commandos raided where the prisoners were. The hostages were lying down on their makeshift mattresses, and the commandos yelled in Hebrew, stay down, stay down. We are Israeli soldiers here to rescue you. And they, because only they understood Hebrew, stayed where they were while the others, the terrorists popped up and were killed. The hostages rescued and taken home. That overwhelming force represented one of two things. 
to the enemies. To the enemies, it only represented death and judgment, utter distance. But to those who bowed, that power was power that was focused to save. That's your Christ. That is the Christ who holds out His hands to you. Who tells you, it doesn't tell you stay down in order to, to keep you in suppression, but He says, bow down. Come to me. I'll make a way for you. I'll protect you. I'll lead you through these hard times. I'll lead you through worse times than these. I will lead you into the promised land where you will live forever. This is the one. This is the glory. This is the glory of God revealed to earth. Surprise of His utter distance. Harnessed to bring the surprise of the glory of His salvation in Jesus Christ. Embrace Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would take these words from this ancient book and work them deeply into our souls. We believe. Help our unbelief. For those who have never yet believed, still trusting in some other worldview, trusting in themselves, cynical or despairing, bitter, May this be the day that you come down on them and overwhelm them with the power of your presence in order to save them and to draw them close. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said.